Welcome to the very first Black Tribe podcast. I am sitting here with my gorgeous and amazing co-host, Lisa Marie Black. Say hi, Lisa. Hello. You have to believe what he says because you can't see me. (laughs) Gorgeous. Hey, guys, we just want to welcome you to uh, our family podcast. We've chosen the name Black Tribe as that a lot of our spiritual children and obviously our five children... Natural children all um, feel like they're part of the tribe, and we're just going to continue to grow like God wants to get his family back. We're just going to continue to grow our family and our tribe. And, you know, we always encourage everybody, right, Hannah, that, you know, you need to find your tribe. Absolutely. We're not necessarily your tribe, but if if, um, if you're out there and you're in the kingdom lifestyle at all, you need to find your tribe where you can thrive and have community and accountability and beauty surrounding you Absolutely. at all times. So that's the essence of the Black Tribe, and that's why it's called this. And so here we go. How are we going to start this off, babe? Well, I just really thought the best thing we could do is share our stories. And um, I think we often think that people know our stories. And so much of what we teach and what we've learned and who we are have to do with our history and what we've overcome. And so I thought it would be a good foundation. I'd like to start with you. Okay. I know that every time we tell our story, it costs us a little bit. And we cry a little bit. And we'll try to get through this. But just wanted to hear, like, what is your history, basically, that has brought you to this point? Your family of origin and what you've been through. Yeah, you know, we've got quite the story. Yes, uh, at one we point, we had a documentary made of our lives, and that wasn't even the start of it. <clears throat> we so. thought it was. Yeah, we, we thought did. that was the end of the story. We did. It was the beginning. We have five beautiful and amazing living children. As most of you know, we lost uh, a 19-year-old son, Michael Ryan. In 2013 so that's all part of our story so I was raised in a little cow town called Monument Colorado and uh, uh, raised with horses and we were actually very impoverished impoverished when I was young we lived in a trailer park with another family of five and a little trailer and I had to wear hand-me-down clothes and zip-up boots to play in and and we had nothing um, <clears throat> we had to literally go without food many times and Christmases we'd have maybe one gift like a matchbox car or something at Christmas and then at around age 13 my dad stepped into commercial real estate and became a multi-millionaire kind of overnight and you shifted from one lifestyle to a completely completely different, different kind of lifestyle. lifestyle yeah and it, it seemingly for us kids it seemed like overnight although I know my father put in a lot of yeah. hard hard work he was a workaholic actually and, um, and so we were millionaires from about age 13 to 19, which was some really fun, crazy time. I miss that time. <laughs> <laughs> Built a house on a lake, and we had boats and cars and motorcycles in Hawaii for Christmas and the whole thing, and then lost everything again. My family did, and um, has never really regained it, although we've tried many, many times. And so I've been on both ends of the spectrum, in poverty and in the millions of dollars and everything in between. Um, I was raised in a very religious home, uh, very staunch, very black and white, mm-hmm. very um, right and wrong. And we went to church every Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. And at first we were Christian Missionary Alliance. And then my mom actually met Holy Spirit and received the baptism in Holy Spirit and baptized me at seven years old. Wow. And I spoke in tongues for about two hours with her the first time she ever prayed for me. 
Uh, and it took my dad a little bit longer. Dad came around later, and so we shifted churches into open Bible churches, which was phenomenal, really family-oriented, um, great church in Colorado Springs, Colorado, that we were a part of. And uh, But, you know, it was just religion. It was just kind of going to church, mm-hmm. and it felt pretend to me as a kid. And uh, I was making out with all the girls in youth group. And, of course you were. You know, getting into trouble. And so left uh, the church when I turned about 17, 18, started partying quite a bit, uh, made some really good money at an early age. Uh, and so I was making money and spending money on the wrong things. <laughs> and so met another girl uh, at the age of 22 and actually living the lifestyle I did, got her pregnant out of wedlock. Mm. And the moment that I found out that she was pregnant, I stopped everything. I was doing a mass amounts of cocaine and getting high and drinking about two to $3,000 a month worth of alcohol. and. When I found out that I was going to have a child, I stopped everything. Uh-huh. Didn't, didn't drink, didn't do anything for 10 years. Stopped drugs, obviously, completely. And You didn't go to rehab or no, anything? nothing. Stopped cold turkey. Okay. And uh, knew that my me and my house would serve the Lord. I, I always had that in my spirit from the way I was raised. Mm-hmm. Incredible mother, unbelievable, intercessor, soft, beautiful woman. She made me breakfast every morning, oatmeal, and would read me the scriptures. Um, poured into my life in every essence. My dad was a workaholic. His father was an alcoholic, and so he wasn't a great father in the beginning. Mm -hmm. He was very staunch and harsh and um, over-disciplined, would would beat us with a leather bat for discipline, and sometimes Mm -hmm. my brother would go unconscious and had a special needs sister, both older than me, my brother and sister, and... um, so he really learned how to be a father just on us yep. and him and I having interactions. And we we're best friends today. He's 80 and still alive and raising my special needs nephews and nieces. Um, but got this woman pregnant and married her and I shouldn't have. My dad tried to get me to not. She was very mentally ill. She had a lot of issues. Um, was diagnosed schizophrenia and different things. But I felt like I could fix her. I had a Jesus complex in those days. I still can fall into that at times, right? We all do. And, uh, and uh, but I couldn't. And so we had three boys. Uh, in the midst of that, when I was 25, I came back into the church. And then I was the na- uh, regional youth pastor, national youth pastor for open Bible churches. Immediately kind of stepped back into my calling, who I was and my anointing. And then... Uh, out of just some miraculous things, helped start a ministry called Rock the Nations in Kansas City. So I was the VP of sales of a telecom company making six figures, doing really well, and felt the call of God on my life and sold everything and moved my wife at the time and my two boys, Tyler and Michael, to Kansas City, Missouri. Because you are not afraid of extremes. I was n- I've never been afraid of extremes. I know I've sold everything and moved, I think, three or four times now, right? Yes. And so, uh, yeah, we did. We sold everything, moved to Missouri uh, under a guy named Mike Bickle, and we were on extended staff there. It was an incredible time, incredible prophetic season out there. Bob Jones and Paul Kane and this just massive swirl of the prophetic that I just had never seen mm. in, that, in that realm and learned a lot from that season. Um, we started the ministry, very difficult, um, but God decided to breathe on it. And it kind of started turning into something. And a guy named Lou Engel joined Rusty Carlson and I, and a guy named David Perkins, who has a a great church in Kansas City now. And God just started to grow the ministry. And um, my ministry life and my work life was amazing. And I would come home to a wife that hated me, that hated herself. Uh, 
that would break the whole house apart, um, was very violent and um, very miserable. Had many leaders and counselors try to help, help her and ask her what was wrong and nothing was good enough and nothing ever worked. We had our third boy while we lived in Kansas City, Caleb Alexander. He's 21 now. And um, my, at the time, the covering out there in Kansas City knew that we had some pr- troubles on staff and knew the troubles I was having at home and um, encouraged me to move the ministry back to Colorado Springs. Uh, Did under, they not want to deal with you anymore? They, they didn't want to deal with the whole. It was a lot. <laughs> now, the ministry was doing really well, but there was just a lot of yes. personalities and aspects about it. And so we did. We moved back to Colorado Springs under a pretty famous guy at the time, uh, a big, big mega church out yeah. there. He really helped us a ton, gave us a lot of money and a lot of help. And it just grew and grew from there. We started uh, a thing called Prayer Storm out of that. We called the Youth of America to come and pray and fast for a week. We didn't think they were going to fast, so we brought hamburgers and stuff to the meetings, and nobody would buy the hamburgers or the pancakes, and we were shocked. And yeah. it was literally a, a movement had begun of the Youth of America fasting and praying for America and for the nations. And so uh, the, one of the guys I had started with uh, was removed from the ministry, and Lou England and I kind of took it from there. In 1999, we were at the pinnacle at the top. I was speaking about 145, 150 times a year. Did you uh, think, been in the big magazines and what's that? Did you think at that time that what was happening in the ministry that you were involved in and the way that God was using you and the moves of the spirit you were seeing, did you think that was you? I did. There's a lot of it where I, my character was not quite fixed up to my gift at the time. Okay. Um, we were seeing massive moves of God, and we would have angels ascending and descending in their events. We had the demonic displaying itself, people right. levitating and faces distorting. And I know a lot of this generation doesn't really even believe in the devil, but he's very real. Yeah. Uh, I grew up in a house where my dad had a deliverance ministry and watched a lot of devils being um, delivered from people and a lot of manifestations through my life. Scary stuff for a little boy. Very scary. We had people slithering around the house, and my brother and I would just hold each other and pray. And we'd be, we knew there was a devil. We weren't sure there was a God. <laughs> but we knew there was a devil. And uh, and so, yeah, 1999, we had about 10,000 people gathered, 70 nations. We had people like Lauren Cunningham, the founder of YWAM, and Dick Eastman, who birthed the whole 70s movement with his <clears throat> prayer movement. And a lot of guys there speaking and with us and on our board. And uh, my wife at the time decided that she was going to run off with someone else. She'd been had many multiple adulterous affairs at this point. But I really felt called to stay in the marriage and try to work it. And um, But she left, and she filed a false restraining order against me. Mm-hmm. But the police believed her. And she took my three boys, and she was gone. And I couldn't find them anywhere. So I would literally preach or introduce somebody, and I'd crawl under the stage and just curl up and not knowing what to do. Um, did, so, any, did anyone at that time that you were you were ministering with some of the leaders, did they know the level of what you were dealing with? Or did you feel you know, ashamed? I, or I hit it pretty well, although at this point, um, a lot of the elders of our church had started to get involved. Yes. And in fact, one, one, one meeting, some of the elders were sitting there with us. She came downstairs and pointed a gun in my face and was going to shoot me, and I asked her to. And the head elder of our church at the time looked at me and he said, if I were you, I'd get as far away from this marriage as I possibly could. Mm. This, this woman does not want help. She does not want healed. And that was all happening around the same time. And that's when she when she was kind of exposed that way, she decided uh, she, she was going to leave. And so she left. Yeah. Okay. A lot of people didn't believe me, of course. You know, I'm a pastor in Colorado Springs. 
and she was very convincing. And so basically the church disowned me. The, the, the pastor at the time looked at me and said, I know you're innocent. I walked with you in this for many years, but you're really making us look bad as a whole. So mm. I'm going to blackball you. And so I'm not going to endorse you anymore as a minister or a ministry. Um, and we don't he, really ever know how to deal with these situations, though, do we? We're not we're not really taught. Uh, to, we need to learn to restore people and to look at the bigger picture of what's happening in people's lives and yeah. not necessarily what's happening on the stage. Yeah, and you're right. We've not been trained it. And he did look at me and said, if you would have committed adultery or done some big sin, I could set up a two-year restoring thing around you and you'd be fine. But since you didn't do anything, I don't know what to do. I, I wish I could put you in my attic and play nice music, um, but I don't know what to do. So I'm just done. And so I was literally, from night from that last event, and in three months, I was bankrupt. My 45-member staff were gone. Our offices were gone. Uh, that pastor shifted the ministry completely into another person's name. Yeah. I, we had just named it The Call, and it just started that, and Lou kind of stepped into that position, and has taken it and done amazing things with The Call and now This End. Um, the seeds were planted. Yeah, seeds were planted. And the momentum was there, the mm -hmm. movement had begun, and it's still going. And I think things that we prayed and fasted for as a generation in the 90s, we're seeing birth, birth they're birthing now right yes. in front of us. And so, so yeah, so um, almost didn't make it through that. I almost died doing that. I moved up onto the YWAM base, and an amazing guy who took me to my first 1040 trip in Asia, a guy mm -hmm. named Fred Marker, just played his guitar and loved me really well through that time. Um, and uh, then I met... You. Oh, well, that's another story. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other story. <laughs> that's another story. So can I just ask you, just for people that are listening, um, what, looking back, it's so easy when you look back on your life and you're older, because you're 52, now I'm 48. We have grown children and we have grandchildren, and we spend a lot of our time really loving and ministering to a younger generation. And they come to us for wisdom, but what... What would you say to Gary at 32 when you're in the heat of this? What would you tell him now that you've mm. walked through, you're on the other side of it, we've, we've seen amazing redemption in our family yeah. and we've seen more tragedy in our family, but what would you say to that young man? You know, I, I, I would say slow down, find men that don't have an agenda that actually want to see you be okay. Mm. It was very difficult in the 90s to find because men had never been discipled or trained to do that. Right. And our church was so big that they literally didn't want to do that. Mm -mm. And, uh, you know, I had to kidnap the boys and disappear for a while. I had to bring them back. We had to fight for custody for three years and spent hundreds of thousands of dollars, lost homes and cars. And, and I really didn't have anybody but until I met you after um, my first wife divorced me in court and got rid of my name. Um, I honestly miraculously met you and you just started to remind me who I was and bring life. And so God really used Eve, lifesaver in you, to bring me back to life mm. and to keep me alive, actually. And so he, God will always send somebody and God will always make sure that we're okay. Right. Uh, but we need to learn as a church mm. to, uh, to do what, so much better. We've got a lot of teachers. We don't have we very do many fathers. We do not have many fathers. That's we'll what probably I was, talk about that a little bit. That's what I was thinking as you were speaking. I was thinking what would be different in that scenario? Maybe not the outcome, and you certainly cannot control people or their choices, but 
to have someone older and wiser that actually cared about the whole of who you were as a man and who your children were and your family. And, and I'll say, you know, my parents really did. My dad saved amazing. my life multiple times. He's and amazing. He's, he did. He stepped in and he served me really well. My mom, of course, knew the pain that I was in and just loved me really, really well. And so I don't know that I would have made it without mom and dad for sure. I, I wouldn't have. Um, but God then used you to step in. Um, I know people have been trying to introduce us for a while, and I was so broken and, and, and hurt. You'd been widowed for five years. We're going to get to your story in a little while. And Jesus had become your husband, so you were really not wanting to necessarily just stop that and be, be with a fleshly man. I mean, I, it's, you know, it's Jesus. <laughs> He's a really good provider. Absolutely. He's a really good cover. He's a good husband. I never thought I'd be that girl because yeah. I always thought that was kind of cheesy when women would say those things. But when you are desperate for more of God than what you found in church, yeah. you will find every aspect of his character no question. come forth. And I think that's true for men and women. And I found him in that, but I, I didn't take the time I probably should have. Uh, I'm, uh, you know, uh, we, we've talked about that. To heal? That more. Yeah, I needed to heal a little more. Yeah. I transmitted that some of that on you and, and the kids, but, you know, out of that, fought for custody of the boys, and we got it. It took three years. Was, I think we were the first, I was the first man in Colorado Springs to win custody of his so. kids. Um, we uh, were, it was a horrible time we lots of violence lots of we were the police were called more times on our case than any other case in the history of Colorado Springs at the time probably still um, we had a lot of violent men coming after this that were being lied to of who we were mm -hmm. we were always looking over our shoulder uh, it was a very unrestful unpeaceful time um, but you know started some companies started making some money um, moved back up to Monument and then uh, started hanging out with this my buddy Tom Davis my crazy buddy and we started going to Russia and working on some orphanages over there and then I got the call from Andrew Shearman <laughs> uh, in 2004 I hadn't heard from him in a while he's Andrew's my mentor 74 now we, we have G42 our school out here in Spain that we where we're recording from actually right now but Andrew called me and asked me what I was doing and where I was, and Tom and I were actually in North Carolina talking to the president of Pepsi-Cola Bottling about sponsoring our orphanages in Russia. And uh, he said, I'm in the mountains, come on up. And so we drove up to Georgia, and I walked in the back room, and Andrew said, oh, good, Gary's here, and handed me the mic. I love him. And uh, I just do what I do. I released Holy Spirit in the room, yeah. and most of the people in the crowd had never experienced Holy Spirit. Mm. And, uh, and there was a, a man in the corner just shaking his head the whole time. I didn't know it was Seth Barnes at the time. Our brother Seth. Our brother Seth. Our, he's the founder of Adventures and Missions. Started out of his garage. He is a prince of a man. He he's been very special to our family for many, many years now. But Seth and Andrew and Tom and I, after we cleaned things up a little bit, would stay up for the next few nights and dream about initiating the youth of America mm. and dream about having a leadership school that would plan 100,000 kingdom aspects of what that would look like, communities around the planet. And we dreamed and we dreamed and then we birthed. And yeah. out of that came the world race. So we started the world race. Uh, you and I and our six babies moved to Africa, to Swaziland. We sold everything. We were on five acres and had all the toys and the boats and the motorcycles. And and we sold it all. And it was great. It's a fantastic story, guys. I was in Gainesville teaching at a, a, one of the very first world race launches. Back in those days, we just had tents. We didn't have buildings or anything nice. And... Uh, and I came off of teaching and Seth said to me, it's time to go to Africa. In the, in the 80s, 
in early 90s, my dad planted uh, about 2,200 churches in Africa. So I was, I was always dreamt of living in Africa. I was passionate about it. Uh, we would have Africans come and stay with us. And so Seth knew that call on my life. And I got done teaching, I walked over and he said, it's time to go to Africa. And I fell over in travail underneath, under the Holy Spirit, just weeping. And we went to dinner and he said, you better call Lisa and tell her. And, and I was at home in Colorado with six children yeah. under the age of probably 14, 15 14 at that at time. time. Yeah, 15. And Down to two, living the dream. So I called you and I said, <laughs> babe, I think we're supposed to go to Africa. And you said, oh yeah. My bags are packed. Seth came to me in a dream. And I had a dream. Yeah, what? <laughs> I did. I had a dream that uh, Seth was just sitting there talking to me. And he's not hes not our Jesus. He's not our God. He's just someone who knows our life and, yeah. and loves us and wants the best for our family. And so, like, like Andrew, we listen to their wisdom and we consider things. And in my dream, he came and pointed his finger and said, it's time, time to go to Africa, which was not my dream. I am. I love inner city America more than just about anything else, and I could live and die there and be completely happy. I did not even have a passport at that time, so that was interesting yes. for me in my early 30s to get my first passport. Yep. And um, I knew we were supposed to do it, though, and I knew that it was going to be really, really hard. And I knew that our kids would have that foundation to build on for the rest of their life. Yeah, it's true. After you know, a couple of years after our my whole life fell apart, you and I got married. We adopted the girls. They actually adopted me. It was a brilliant they ceremony. Did and um, and then we were making money again. We were living life, and it wasn't easy. It was chaotic. Um, There's still a lot of pain, a lot of trauma lots of from pain the early and, parts of yep. our lives that we had to work through. Absolutely, and then. This whole Africa thing happened, and you knew it, and you said it, and you've said it to me now a number of times. And uh, I said, I married the right woman. And <laughs> so did Andrew and Seth. They, well, the right one for nuts. you, at least. That's <laughs> right all that me. actually really matters. But we did. I did tell you, I do believe we're supposed to do this. I think it's going to be really hard and really amazing. I'll follow you anywhere. I've told you that before. But I am not going to go to a third world country and fight teenagers all day. Yeah. And so you've got to present this to the family and let them know that this is what we're thinking of doing. And, yep. and they each individually have to give a stamp approval. And you and Michael, Michael was about 14 at the time, did kind of a vision trip yep. and went over there. Yep. And he's, his life was changed. His life was changed and he loved it and he knew. And all the kids wrote letters of how God came and met them and told them we're all supposed to move there. Uh, and so we did. We sold. We had to go back to court and fight again to get an international approval to take the kid, the boys. And we went for a week, and it was miserable. We had lawyers spitting on us and attacking us. But at this point in our lives, we've been so broken. We we were just smiling. This is when you they made were. The, I was not. <laughs> I was not okay at that point because this is when I, they made the first documentary about. I love that about you, though, that you always look beyond the, our circumstances to what else is going on, and you forgive people so easily, and you love people so easily, and it's not that way for me. I really, really um, can easily just go into protective mode and well, that's what mothers and, do. and and lose lose sight of the bigger picture. But you kept us on track with that. It was pretty tough. It was. It was very tough, but it, you know we had to 
board up windows and we had to kind of nobody's gonna believe any of the story because i lived it and was, i still can't believe it was it. crazy it seems like another life at this point but thank god we got without even the the judge never even looked up but we got full approval so we moved to africa and it was the first time in our lives together that we weren't looking over our shoulders all day and the turmoil stopped and the attack stopped and the Isn't police that crazy that we moved to a third world country and had to have the protection of a guard at night and barbed wire fence all around our property and never let our kids out of our sight for a second and we felt more peace there more than peace. we did because the harassment could not follow Absolutely. us there. We had no internet in our house. We had no TV in our house in Africa. Yep. Pro- do you remember First six that? months, we had nothing. Nothing. No. Yeah. And the kids had to come up with really interesting games yes. to entertain themselves. Well, and then about the fourth month, they came to us and they all were like, get us out of here. And they were shaking and crying, remember? It was on our anniversary. Uh, yeah. And they all came crying and saying, basically, I'm going to get grandma. Yeah. To buy me a ticket because <laughs> Grandma was, and we were afraid of our moms. <laughs> we knew if our moms knew how dangerous yeah. it was there and what we were going through, they would buy the children so out. So true. And so, what did you do? I said, guys, don't talk to me. You wrote me a letter and told me how God told you to come here. So you guys go talk to him about it and blame him and ask him what he's going to do about it. And so they did, and every one of them kind of found their niche. Our daughter Alexis started Beauty for Ashes. She did with little girls that were being raped by their bus drivers and Tyler and Michael found rugby and started playing rugby all over South Africa. Mm-hmm. Caleb became at 11 years old a cricket player and traveling around South Africa playing cricket and so it was incredible and and no, little Noah man was running around with a sword everywhere. He's yeah. four years old playing soccer in the backyard with the guard. Yes. Tozani. And, uh, and when they would go down to <laughs> Nisoko which is where um, the, the children's village was started there they all found their own Thing. They found yeah. their own way to relate to the, the kids there in their own way. Of Emily kind of started a preschool in the dirt yeah. using orange peels to count with because that yeah. was all we had. And they just really, they found their own they place and it. their own vibe. And they started thriving. And, and we, Lisa and I were praying one time. Lisa said, there's a remnant. Let's go find it. So we drove down to this little place called Nasoko. And we found a bunch of kids naked half naked and fully naked that hadn't eaten in, in a month it was and one grandma yeah. trying to feed them and so one I, grandma who had no biological tie to any of those children but yeah. she was absolutely determined on her little pension that she was going to feed all of these children because yeah. no they had no one else to feed them so i went across the street and brought some africans some white south africans farmers across mm-hmm. and showed them and they immediately went and bought pots and we started our first children's village yeah. that's still thriving and now the ministry there is feeding six to eight thousand kids a day and educating and and that's all because of the leadership it's the there. people on the ground yeah, there it's, it's not, us. not us but we got to be a part of that we did special and then because there were so many complaints coming from America and lies from mm-hmm. the boy's first mom and the government there was not happy that we were doing more than them. It's funny, guys, in Russia, in Africa, everywhere we've ever worked, they never think they have an orphan problem. Swaziland is still the number one country in the world for AIDS, and it's basically Gogo's grandmas and kids because all the parents have died. And, uh, and it's, it's miserable, but the government did not like the work we were doing. And I think potentially we were the first people kicked out of Africa. They sent us a letter. Well, they just didn't approve our visas, so we <laughs> thought it would be best if we just yeah. moved back to the States earlier than we had planned on moving. Yeah. And we did no reentry. No. We um, were kind of naive to all of that because we did so much debriefing and reentry with other people. We thought that we had it all figured out. And 
We just moved right back into the American lifestyle. Yeah, we did. And it was a shock and we didn't do it well. I thought I could do it as being a professional ministry guy and, uh, and a missionary and I didn't. Well, and I always think I can love people right through their pain. So yeah. I don't need any help so with that. So it was really tough on our kids. The, lots of fights, lots of stuff. Michael got started getting caught up into some drugs. Uh, it was just kind of a downward spiral. You kept telling me to pick up my sword and fight again. We stepped out of the world race. We had a lot, bunch of world racers uh, follow us to Colorado Which Springs, awesome. and it was awesome. And um, we had 40 there, I think, at one at one time. But um, yeah, but it was a rough seven years, really it hard. We stepped really out of ministry, rough. stepped back into business, and things just weren't working or clicking. Um, and in the midst of that, uh, the boys started playing USA Rugby and got scholarships to go play rugby in St. Louis mm-hmm. at a college. And uh, our Michael got to go see his birth mom at 18 and got caught up in some really bad things. And, um, and then we got him back. We got his scholarship reinstated and we had him home. And on Easter, April 2013, he came to me and said, Dad, please don't send me back to school. I can't do it. And he started telling me all the things he'd been doing underground and with the cartel and how he'd ripped the cartel off and all kinds of things. And um, I insisted that he go back and finish. When he was driving away, he looked back at me, and I knew it was the last time I was going to see him. And so on April 16th at 1130, uh, I texted him and asked him if he was okay. And at midnight at 12.05 on April 17th, he sent me a text and he said, Daddy, I love you. I'm really sorry I had to do this. And he died a violent death. <clears throat> he sat in his dorm room for three hours rocking and no one asked him what was wrong. And uh, he went out of a four-story window um, after he'd done some stuff to himself. And it was, uh, it shifted, it changed everything for us. We. <clears throat> we went into shock. You started raking the front yard. Well, in the I mean, storm. you know, everyone responds to trauma differently, and I—that is the second major trauma I'd had in my life. And um, I just knew people were going to start coming to the house, and it was going to start snowing. And and you—it's crazy the things that you do to fill the time while your brain is trying to catch up with yeah. what is happening. Actually, because it was just—it was so horrendous and. All the kids responded differently. Tyler went into his mode of just he's going to take care of everybody and we're going to get through this and started making plans. And and Alexis couldn't even think straight and didn't realize what was happening until a couple days later. And then it hit her. And well, the girls drove me to the airport the next morning in a snowstorm. They hadn't slept. We were all in shock and none of us had slept. And I got to St. Louis. Tyler was waiting for me. Seth Barnes had beat me there. Chad Mass drove down, one of our old racers. Uh, and just trying to get through that. I laid hands on Michael at one point. It was cold, and I just fell to the ground, and I had to be carried everywhere. Um, and so that started. Uh, uh, the, the amazing thing that came from that, even in that time, was our community came back together in Colorado Springs. We literally thought we had lost everyone and all of our friends. And two, three hundred people show up with food. And yeah, more than that. It was unbelievable. Yeah, and then his memorial service was about 3,000 young there people. There was a lot and, of people there. And this little movement started that we didn't even know about the Black Tribe and Team Black and mm-hmm. how Michael affected all of these people's lives. Yeah. Um, and so we didn't know out of, I had a, my, my very best friend in the world, Lonnie Dyer, kept me alive during those times, would meet so me at 3 a.m. and teach me how to breathe and he helped me start a foundation in Michael's name I would have known how to do any of those things Lonnie really became my armor bearer during that that season and and so we 
uh, just couldn't get anything to work. We just started a company um, and franchised it in 32 states, and our business partner took advantage of that because we were numb and in shock. And we were left, Lonnie and I, with 52 shareholders, and it was one of the most miserable things I'd ever walked through in the midst of this. Sitting back down in Gainesville with Seth Barnes, I always warn everybody, if you want to sell everything and move to a different country, go meet with Seth in Gainesville. He'll, he'll, he'll get you there. And uh, <laughs> he, uh, he told me we'd be in Spain, and I said there's no way. And then by the fall, September 2015, we sold everything, didn't own a spoon. And you, me, and Noah moved here. It's been three and a half years. And those first three months, we just wept and cried and slept. Um, I had an incredible encounter with a lady that gave me a prophetic word that the enemy had picked up my sword and killed my own son with my sword, that sword that you'd been telling me to pick up for many years. Yeah. And, um, and so out of that, my soul began to sing. Uh, we began to get restored. Andrew did an amazing job here of letting the kids kind of just pull on our gifting. Yeah. And we started teaching again and ministering again. And then all of a sudden, now three and a half years later, we're, we're going around the world. We're um, empowering young people and old people. Yep. Um, your book's going to come out here pretty soon. And so God has really taken the tragedy and pain in our life. And pain is the greatest teacher. I'll say it over and over and over. When we learn to sit in it and allow it to do its work and not anesthetize it, not drink it away, not run away from it, not push it down, not over-medicate our kids when they're in pain. Yeah. Um, when we learn to teach our kids and ourselves to sit in our pain and allow it to do its work, and we hold good news and bad news the same way when we learn how to do this, that your, your emotions don't dictate your life, uh, circumstance don't dictate your life, the word of, of, the, of the Lord, scripture, and your relationship with Holy Spirit and with Jesus are the only things that dictate your life. And there's hundreds of seasons in life. And so when you're in a really good season, you know there's one bad one coming. So you just go, all right, we're going to brace. <laughs> and when you're in a really bad season, you need to know it's going to be over soon. So just keep getting up and keep doing what you know how to do. And so here we are. And it's uh, it's been quite a life. It's not even near over. Our story is still being written. Um, but we are at the top in our marriage. Our kids are starting to flourish and, and shine. They're, they're, they're doing incredible with relationships. We've got two grand baby girls, Perfect girl. Michaela and Palmer Grace. They are simply amazing. And so, guys, the story's been written. It's, there's going to be a lot more to it. Um, next episode, we are going to hear from you, babe. Oh. We're talk about your story and how it mishmashed into my crazy story. Bring your Kleenex. How you saved my life <laughs> and where we're going next. Hey, guys, we want to thank you for, for tuning in. Um, this is just an honor for us. Everything we do now, we don't really have any agenda except to see people's hearts come alive. We want to make everybody we meet look like the Garden of Eden. So if you encounter us, if you encounter this podcast, what we want from this is for you to come alive to another level, that there is hope, there is Absolutely. faith. God does rescue us. He really is a good, good father. He and he's much bigger and better than you've ever been told. And we're going to let you, we're going to come with so many podcasts around that and around the beauty of who God is and the beauty of our marriage and, and what God's doing in our lives and around the world. So thanks for tuning in. Father, in Jesus' name, thanks for life. Thanks that in the midst of 
craziness and chaos, that we can rise above chaos like you did when you created the world. And we can bring authority and boundaries into our life and into the people around us. God, we bless everybody listening to this podcast. We ask that you'd enlighten the eyes of their heart, Ephesians 1.18, and that you'd bring their hearts alive to who you are even more in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, baby. That was fun. Thank you.